so the way that I want to frame today is we're like part three or four of this journey towards trying to wrap our brains around the true myth, the, the mythic worldview, I guess is what I want to call it. I'm not sure I can get away with that, but I like it. <laughs> Having a mythic worldview about life. What? Are you missing a chair? She's sort of There's a chair right there. We got plenty of chairs. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, do, do whatever you got to do. <laughs> um, and so when we look at things like Tolkien or Narnia or whatever, I want us to learn how to apply that and kind of make it a, a normal process for, for how we see the world. And so we started out on Friday reading those chapters, and then Monday we talked about it. Tuesday I showed you Lord of the Rings and say, look, we can do this. And so now what I want to do is, with Silmarillion, learn a little bit of what Tolkien coins as applicability, all right, and how to take these stories and apply them to our lives. You don't have to like Lord of the Rings for this. Does that make sense? It's just for two and a half weeks, that's what we're going to use, so that you can either keep doing it with Lord of the Rings, or go do it with a story that you like. Like, whatever. If you like Harry Potter, do Harry Potter or Star Wars. <coughs> Actually, that will be your final exam, which is what I am ex going to explain here in, in a day or two, either Friday or Monday. Your final exam will be taking a story and with applicability in mind, seeing how that story teaches us, teaches you about the story that you're in. Everybody got that? You can pick whatever story you want. Um, and that'll be fun to see what people come up with. All right, so you can start, that could be your homework right now. It's like, what story, what epic movie, what epic story, what big favorite journey that I, do I want to follow? Um, and so for now, we're going to look at Lord of the Rings, okay? Today, I specifically am going to use Silmarillion to teach you. And so I'm going to be pretty heavy on it, but I want it to be interactive, and I want you to take notes and teach you how to experience myth and how to do applicability and kind of follow along. Tomorrow, we're going to use Riddles in the Dark, and it's going to be less direct and more invitational, like where do you see stuff in here? And then hopefully by the end of, we're going to do Fellowship of the Ring next week, by the end of Fellowship of the Ring, it's, it's becoming really natural and you're starting to see it. Got a plan? We good? Okay. Reminder, logistically for your Grace blog, still got three weeks to do it, but don't forget the Grace blog. And, uh, and then your final exam will be the last thing. So I'll pray today. Let me pray. Lord, we invite your presence here in a powerful way, a way that we can really feel you moving and inspiring us and helping us learn. I pray you'd help me to teach clearly. And thank you for this work, uh, Silmarillion, a chance to really uh, experience myth-making uh, in, in a tangible way. Thank you for Tolkien's work and his willingness to share it with us. Um, thanks for your grace on this journey and uh, for your deep love for us. And thanks for embedding us within your story, the best story ever. Like, this is an incredible story that we're in. Help us be able to walk away encouraged while we're in our story with some of the truths we can learn from Tolkien. Pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, page 159, forward to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien 
had been getting a bunch of fan mail and a bunch of criticism. And a lot of the readers and critics were like, okay, I think we've got it figured out. Sauron is Hitler. And then they would just go, da 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 work it down. Or, or a bunch of us, you know, would do something like, okay, I think I got it. So ready, Gandalf is Jesus, and Frodo is Peter, and Sam is James, and Mary and Pippin are John, and like, and the people are trying to do what? Like, figure it out in the context of allegory. And ready? It's not an allegory. That's where we got to start, okay? If you're going to try and figure out what it means so that you can put it on a shelf and walk away, well, you can do that, but then you're really missing the power of story, the power of myth, right? To help us all learn wherever we are on our journey. So Tolkien writes this stuff. The real war does not resemble the legendary war in its process or conclusion. And then he goes on with this whole paragraph. Hopefully you've read it by now. You've had several minutes. Or he's just like, if, it wound, if I wanted to do a one-to-one -one ratio with World War II, I could have done this and this and this and this and this and this. And this. He's like, I, I don't want to do that. And then we get to this great paragraph here. Other arrangements could be devised according to the taste or views of those who like allegory or topical reference. But I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and have always done so since I grew old and worry enough to detect its presence. Now, I like some allegories. I can also understand why Tolkien is glad that not everybody writes an allegory. <laughs> and just the difference between the two. He says, I much prefer history, true or feign, with its varied applicability. Circle the word. It's a great word. To the thought and experience of the readers. I think many confuse applicability with allegory. The one resides in the freedom of the reader. Applicability resides in the freedom of you and I to interpret and make connections and learn. The other in the purpose domination of the author. I'm like, dude, chill. <laughs> domination is a strong word. All right, so what are some famous allegories? <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, come on, somebody. All right, and, uh, it's really metaphor of the cave, but yeah, allegory of the cave. How about like uh, Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody? Any takers here? I think some of you acted it out a while ago. All right, but Pilgrim's Progress. You've got a, a dude who's a pilgrim, which he's on a journey, named what? Christian. <laughs> Christian, right? With a big old burden on his back. What's that? Sin. Leaving the city of destruction going where? To the celestial city. Anybody catching it? Now, could that be our friend who is a Muslim on his journey to Mecca? Uh, thank you. Like no, like, the answer is no. You cannot, uh, you cannot interpret it that way. It's not meant to be interpreted that way. And if you tried to, it would totally you wouldn't be able to. Does that make sense? Because an allegory is like locked and loaded, one to one to one to one to one to one to one, and you're supposed to figure it out. And half the characters have names like deception. You know, like <laughs> it's really straightforward. In the right place at the right time, they're really fruitful and really helpful, and actually really powerful, right? Uh, has anybody read? Heinz Feet on High Places. Ooh, write that down. Hannah Hernard. Heinz Feet on High Places. Half of you will love it. Half of you will hate it. Right? But those of you who love it, like me and my family, will want to read it every year. Right? It's got this great 
character much afraid is her name and she goes from the, the valley of fear and trembling up to the high places with her shepherd king you know it's like this great journey and it's really powerful and we read it as a family every Easter right so that they can be great the problem is that if you take that type of reading into something like Narnia you're gonna be like well okay so Jesus Aslan is Jesus and then Peter is Peter. Okay, now Susan is maybe like Mary Magdalene. Like, does it? It'll fall apart how fast? <laughs> really fast. It's not. And Lewis himself says Aslan's not Jesus because actually is Aslan Jesus? No, Aslan's who? Aslan. He's a lion who saved Narnia. <laughs> Jesus is a person who saved our world. Like, now do they overlap? Well, sure. And are they meant to, like, yeah, like, we're, we're allowed to go there, but just don't do Narnia as an allegory. It won't work. Now, especially Lord of the Rings, right? Does Gandalf act potentially like the Holy Spirit or like Jesus? Oh, yeah, he sweeps into town, kicks people out of their doors in the big adventures. It's great. He dies for them. Spoiler alert. You've had how many years, right? Like, he dies for them and comes back to life, right? Like, all these great things he's really wise he's a powerful counselor super super strong spiritual powers right he's a wizard yeah but is that is he necessarily jesus he's actually not jesus he's not meant to be jesus but does he act like jesus but yeah so does sam so does frodo so does aragorn actually actually most of these characters do in their own way and my uncle is like gandalf Right. And so is like, you know, Jim Holtrop is like Gandalf. Gandalf is like lots of different people and he definitely resembles Jesus. But we're not supposed to lock him in. Got it. Are we tracking there? So then are we allowed to look for metaphors and similes and connections in the Lord of the Rings to apply to our lives? Or is that just the the English teacher's dream come true here? Like. It's, it's all of the above is kind of what I want you to see, uh, except for allegory. And here's the, here's the key word for today, applicability. Tolkien says, I prefer applicability. I'm not writing an allegory. I'm writing a book that you can apply to your life. So for the next two and a half weeks, am I allowed to teach you how to do that? Not only am I allowed to, Tolkien was. You could almost get the sense that that's like why he's writing it. Like he's writing it so that his myth will teach us about what? The, the one that we're in. Fair enough? Well, I kind of, I wanted to build a little bit of a case there to stand on, but also teach you the difference between allegory and <laughs> metaphor and applicability uh, in case you haven't caught that yet. Questions so far? Cool. Well, then in the spirit of applicability, turn the workbook page and you will see Tolkien, the mythic epic adventure beyond the movie. You already saw Nat Geo. How'd it go? Got like three nods. We all right? Tanks are like trolls. And were they doing a lot of great connections? Yeah, it's really cool. So Nat Geo does this. Mr. D is going to do it. We're, we're allowed to do this. And these pages were help you, helping you guide yourself through the movie or through the uh, yeah. So turn the next page and you get to Silmarillion. So page 162, notes on Silmarillion. They were there to guide you through your reading so you didn't get lost with all the names. 
All right. There's a fun video on Academy Central. I don't know if anybody caught that, but it's a really cool video to help you understand what the heck is going on <laughs> with all the names and language and, so, and mythic qualities of Middle Earth. What I want to do right now, though, is give you a little context for it and then use Silmarillion to start teaching us the concept of applicability. I have three really cool lessons that changed my life. One of them is super obvious that I just had missed. And one of them was like really empowering that I want to pass on to you guys and just show you how to do this. So to start, who has read Silmarillion in the room? Raise your hand if you've read it. Good. Right here. <laughs> right. Got some great quotes there, by the way. Thank you for those. All right, so you read it. The rest of you, if you haven't read it, you're invited to read it. Those of you who have read it, is it like reading a novel? No. You're not picking up Jane Austen here. You're not picking up Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. It's more like reading a history textbook. Or I would say it's more like reading the Old Testament, right? Some really cool stories here and there. It starts with like a creation story or two, and then it goes into these big epic battles with really cool characters and a love story thrown in there, and then they kill a dragon here, okay? But what you have in your hands is the mythic backdrop, the landscape for the universe of Middle Earth. Yeah? And we just chatted a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So he should have some info for you. Oh, good. There you go. Um, so if you want to learn more about what's behind Lord of the Rings, this is a great place to go. Just know what you're getting into. All right. Um, if I were to give you a book, The History of the United States of America, or like this one. <laughs> it's quite the read. The history of Europe in a book, right? Um, or how about even like the history of the world? Let's do history of the world, volume one of two. All right. How about in volume two, would the Civil War make it into the history of the world? No. Oh, we got mixed reviews here. No. Hey, come on. Abraham Lincoln, Civil War, slavery. Slightly. It might get a sentence, at least, right? Come on, it's Lincoln and a sentence. Come on, right? Maybe, maybe a paragraph. Are we, are we talking? Yeah, ready? Can we, write, can we write a novel about the Civil War? How many have been written? Like, like Gone with the Wind. Like, look at that. Or how, how about movies on the Civil War? Yeah? Like, libraries on the Civil War. All right, so ready? History of the world, right here. Everybody got it? History of Middle Earth. Pick up Lord of the Rings, and that's a battle in the history of Middle Earth. Got it? There's the first age, second age, third age, fourth age. At the end of the third age, you get the War of the Rings, and I think it's in here. Right? Of the Rings of Power and the third age. There's a little bit here. And uh, you go here... Wait a second, Numenor, Gilgalad, Third Age of the World, Eldest Age, Orcs. Now, all right, well, we get like Galadriel, Elrond, oh, wait, and then you get Aragorn, and oh, the big old, like, here you go, they're going to destroy it, and then we're done. <laughs> I think it gets like four or five paragraphs. Got it? So Tolkien took that 
bit about Sauron and his ring and those rings and then pulled it out of the history and did what with it? Expanded, Expanded it into this 1,400-page epic. You tracking? Let's just give you a little context of Tolkien's genius, by the way. Um, those of you who read Silmarillion, what do you find at the beginning? A creation story, right? It's a creation story. And let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, but before we even get to the creation story piece, right? In the creation story, I think that's really important because Middle Earth has a mythology. It has a creation story. If you read the chapters or looked at some of those quotes before, right? Tolkien realized that Britain did not have a mythology. Does, um, does Norse mythology ring a bell? How about Greek mythology? African mythology? Egyptian mythology? Huh? What's Britain's mythology? I mean, King Arthur. Nope, that's French. <laughs> Chrétien de Troyes wrote it for the French. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> right? Do, do they have a mythology? No, so guess what Tolkien realizes? Like, we don't have a mythology, so I'll do what? I'll make one. Wait, seriously, who does that? Like, Homer <laughs> creates mythology, and that's like <laughs> Iliad and Odyssey. Like, so the dude, like, made up a mythology for Middle-earth. So if you're not aware of this guy's genius, I'm trying to do that in, like, five minutes for you. This guy is brilliant. And he's not going to go away. Like, he created a mythology for England. And it's sticking pretty well so far. So that's cool. By the way, if you have nothing to do in your spare time and you want to create a mythology for us, <laughs> go ahead. Actually, if you're not aware, guess what North American mythology is? Anybody catch it? It's the uh, Marvel Comics. And DC Comics have created the North American. Superman and Spider-Man and Batman. Those are us. I'm not thinking. What was the point of them doing that? That's... Well, a lot of people try to create mythology. Does it always stick? No. No. I think Tolkien's will. I'm not sure about Batman or Superman. We'll see. Why is that? Why, why, why does one stick and one doesn't? Well, that's part of what that. Come on, let's get right here. Come on. Let's get. They're sticking pretty well. I think they're doing. They're doing all right. Uh, the question on why do they stick? Well, why did Iliad and Odyssey stick? Why does the Norse mythology stick? And I would, there's, that's like its own course. It really is. People do college courses on mythology, right? And I will say this. The Hebrew mythology sticks because it's got a creation story. It answers the big seven questions. Does that make sense? It really answers all of those for the people in the mythology. There we go. You go to that story to help you understand your place in it. And what are we claiming? That the Bible is the big one that we're all in, right? Uh, but so Norse mythology, they're going to go with Thor and the hammer and all that kind of stuff. And Greek mythology, right? Yeah. So why would one stick? Well, that would make it stick. And I'm not sure that the Marvel DC ones have figured out how to create that big of <coughs> answers. Maybe. We'll see how they do and see how it's unfolding. That's why we're looking at Silmarillion right now. In Silmarillion, there's a creator god who creates Middle Earth who gives us a standard of right and wrong. And actually, the mythology of Tolkien is a theistic mythology, right? 
This is where it gets a little tricky. Now, I'm not bashing Harry Potter at all. She is a powerful force of a storyteller. And I really like how her stories teach us about our story. But in Lord of the Rings, when you look at Silmarillion, there's a creator god who makes these angels and they sing everything into existence. And then one angel who is a good angel decides to do what? Bad stuff, right? Well, we have a standard for right and wrong in Ilvatar, who's the creator. And therefore, we can now say that Melkor and Sauron are what? Evil, according to that standard. See what's going on? So we've got this whole standard of succession. With Harry Potter, how do we know that, how do you say it, Volta? I always say it wrong. Voldemort? Voldemort. There's a T. Whatever you're saying, that guy. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. D.T. Voldemort. Voldemort? He's a bad dude? According to who? <laughs> exactly. Right. So, do we have a creator god in Harry Potter mythology that says Voldemort, Voldemort bad and Harry good? Dumbledore good. Do we have that? No, now, why does it work? What do we go to the we go to the book and we do what with the morality? We impose it on there and we're fine, right? And they're bad dudes, right? And Harry's a good dude. That's why Star Wars works. Right? We impose it on there. But inside Star Wars, is there a creator? A creator of the universe? Yeah. No, it's in, maybe implied, kind of, but not really, actually. Right? And so is there someone who's deciding right and wrong inside of Star Wars mythology? No. So if you want to adopt it as the mythology for all of us, which could happen in a galaxy far, far away, and we're in that same galaxy, if that were to actually happen and we were to adopt Star Wars mythology as the North American mythology right now, we would end up with what type of a mythology? Monism. Does that make sense? Which, okay, if that wins, then there we go. Uh, right now, I'm preferring the theistic one. Um, but even that one can point to the one that we're in. Are we tracking on some of this? See what's going on? Okay. So, what I want to do is now that we see what Tolkien's doing and understand kind of this whole concept of this overarching mythology, I want us to experience it. We got a couple of options right now. But when we look at Silmarillion, Tolkien has a creation story. Okay? If you go to any other mythology, if we had the time, we could do it right now. Um, maybe some of you could do it quickly, if you're willing. A few people willing to Google creation stories. Google creation stories around the world. Somebody go for it. Let's just see if we can get a few of the, like the Hindu creation story, Buddhist creation story, ancient Egyptian creation story, Norse creation story. Are there creation stories that are all over the place? Somebody can look up Big Bang. Is that a creation story? And by the way, is it a story? Okay, so right, just shout them out a little bit. Creation stories. Ready, go. Nice and loud so everybody can hear. Greek, Greek creation story. Okay, so quick time out. I know we have a couple smaller conversations going, but right there, we just had 
a storyteller tell us what? A story of how the world came into existence. Is that the right one? I hope not. It could be. Right? It's but an awful one. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really want that to be the right one. Uh, okay, you got the Hindu one? Just quick. Just a little, like a... Um, so it's the, the Bhagavad Gita. Yep. Which is like the story for like Hinduism. It's, the, it's the story, it's, right? It's their little book. And uh, basically, Krishna, which is like, if you've ever seen the Adon's Blue Goddess thing. Yeah. That's who Krishna is. Come on, everybody Krishna go. Did, well, she like took clay and made everything. And basically, like, she like formed it out of clay. And then, you know, they make the wool. And then she formed people out of clay and then birds out of clay. So did she speak it into existence? No, she didn't. Oh. So she formed it. Okay, so there you go. See, see what we just got? So in that story, someone's using their hands, and she's got a lot of them. So there you go. Right? How about the Hebrew? Anybody know the Hebrew one? What's the Hebrew one? That would be the Bible, right? And is that a story of creation? Anybody in here know that one? How does God, how does Yahweh create in that one? He speaks everything into existence. Imagine being go like orange and then like bling, it's like in your hand. And then we go, <laughs> giraffe, woo, there it is, right? So he he speaks it into existence and then creates a garden for them. Cool. What's another one? The golden chain. There we go. What's that one? Okay. Are we doing creation stories? Oh, wait, there we go. Uh, the, the god is Ololo. Okay. And then, um, it's like, it's like long ago, long before any people, <laughs> all life existed, they just died. Yeah. And then that god lived in the sky, um, with, there were many Orishas. Okay. Male and female. Yeah. Oh, it, there we go. So it sounds almost like a theistic beginning. Yeah? Oh, yeah. It's very... And then there's, a, there's one of the Arishas that was curious and wasn't content to live blessedly. Um, he had certain powers, but he wanted them to eat and wondered what to do. He looked down through the mist of the sky. Uh, All right, well, we... So well, like, he, like, yeah. Again, if you wanted to read that full story, could you? Yes. We can find the story there. Norse mythology. Anybody know Norse one? Uh, it's like this primordial soup mist thing, and then stuff came out of that. Yeah, I just kind of. I don't know that one as well, but it yeah. basically started with just a bunch of stuff. And we could and we could look up the Greek one. Anybody have one more out there on this? Oh, yeah, one. Oh, 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 oh okay. Oh, there we go. That's a great one. Go for it. Fl flying spaghetti monster. Created the world in five days. Yeah. The first day, the flying spaghetti monster separated the waters from the heavens. On the second, because he could not tread water for long, so he had grown tired of flying. Yes. Basically, he made the world because he was tired of floating. Yeah, okay. There you go. And then um, he created land, and there was a beer volcano there. Of course, there was. Yeah, uh, yeah, fair enough. Right, by the way, anybody know this flying spaghetti monster? Yeah. It's uh, atheists. Atheists come up against. Uh, it's a satirical take on 
you know, well, if God could create something, well, so could the flying spaghetti monster. Which, again, it, they're all what? Here's the key. They're all what? Stories. Did anybody look up the Big Bang one? What's the Big Bang one? Go for it. It's a what? Over here. What's, someone on this side of the room. Big Bang. Go for it. Yeah. Big bang, explosion, everything separated and came back together and then it like and you have natural selection, right? Was anybody there for that? You were there. Awesome. How was it? Loud. Bright. Okay. So you were there and then you wrote it down, right? There we go. And I'm being a little trite on one hand. Got it? On the other hand, I don't know if you catch this. I'm being very serious and scholarly and academic right now. These are all what? Actual things. Well, they're, they're all stories. Everybody got that? Was Mo there for creation? No. no. Mo wrote it down. Got it? And is the Bible, Genesis account, a story? It, you don't deny it. Like, it's a story. Many of the people sitting in the room right now believe it's what? The true one. Do you have to? No, you can pick another one. You can pick Big Bang. Big Bang's a what? A story, <laughs> right? If you want to trust carbon dating, which has been around for how many years, <laughs> you can trust carbon dating to help you interpret that story and go with natural selection. Fine, right? The Big Bang one's going to start with stuff, matter, and electricity, and it's going to be cause and effect ever since. No soul, no creator. It just is and was, right? Bible's going to have a creator. You can see some of these other ones we've been hearing. Fair enough. Tolkien knew that in order to create a mythology, he has to have a what? A creation story. So what's the Silmarillion start with? A creation story. So here's what I want you to do. By the way, thank you. Let's give it up for those who are doing a little research. I hope you're catching something, though, right now. Like, they're all stories. You're trusting, trust list, one of them. If you're not going to trust one of them, well, guess what the Spaghetti Monster people came up with? Theirs. If you don't like the Bible one and you want to go with Big Bang, go for it. <coughs> Except for Olsen, nobody else was there as far as I know. So nobody knows. Nobody was there. They're all stories. Fair enough? I think it's really interesting that even Big Bang is a story used scientifically. Careful using Genesis as a story scientifically. Like, they're, they're both stories. You got to keep that in mind. Um, I just said be careful. I didn't say you can't. Just be careful. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that you are now in the Lord of the Rings Academy instead of Wheaton Academy. And in the Lord of the Rings Academy, what do we believe is the creation of Middle-earth? Iluvatar. It's this one. And so, you're yourself, and you transferred to Lord of the Rings Academy, and as a teacher, I'm trying to convert you to this story. So I want you to listen to it, and what are the connections to Genesis, where are their overlap with Genesis, but I also want some of you to try to take this as serious as possible. It'll actually give pretty good meaning to today's class for some of you. Because some of you actually care about converting people to Christianity. 
right? And those of you who do, see what it would feel like for you to have to convert to this. And you might start getting a taste of how complex evangelism is. Because right now, many of you are trusting what Mo wrote down about a snake in a garden with naked people running around skinny dipping with God and he spoke everything into existence. Does that make sense? You're trusting that story. Cool. So am I. <laughs> what would it be like, though, to have to shift and say, oh, wait, we got the wrong one. The Silmarillion is the right one. Now, am I actually asking you guys to do that? Let's clarify here. I don't want to get fired. <laughs> I'm not asking you that. I am asking you to consider, though, what would that be like to have to shift from God speaking everything into existence to really believing that God made angels who sang the world into existence. Now, some of you are like, ooh, I like that. That's kind of cool, right? So in the effort to do this, I would love to start my big old bonfire in the middle of the room, but that's not my classroom right now. It would be really perfect, wouldn't it? But I would like you to turn the lights off. If you have your phone out and it's distracting you, put it away for 15 minutes. We're going to do story time. So put your phone away, away, not like sitting out, just put it away. Your screen in front of you can have the Silmarillion on it if you're the type who wants to follow along by looking. Otherwise, I want you to actually, beside me, Jay, I want you to look at the screens of people and nudge them. It should not have anything on it but the Silmarillion text, right? Got it? Um, or close it. Uh, and if you want to follow along, you can. Otherwise, I want you just to take 15 minutes of your life, sit back, and experience myth. I've got a professional who's going to read it. All right, I can read it to you, but not like Martin Shaw, right? He's a professional. He's going to read it to us. And um, if you've never done audiobook, here's a great way to do it. Lewis was audiobook. Back in the day, not even that far ago, but... Like, think Beowulf. How was Beowulf told? Do people like stories of all generations? Like, everybody loves stories. Did they have movies during the Middle Ages? No, did they have Netflix? <laughs> no, did they have YouTube? Right, did they, they could actually, could anybody even really read? Hardly. Right, so what would you do if you wanted a good story? You would get the professional storyteller who had memorized a bunch of stories or was a poet or a bard and would create stories and around the campfire at night under the stars that weren't washed out with light pollution, <laughs> you would sit back and the dude would have some funky type of a guitar or harp and drums probably and you'd listen to a story. Yeah? It's nice to get a good story. I want you to do that. You are allowed to fall asleep. If, if you fall asleep to this and you end up in Mythland listening to Tolkien's Silmarillion Genesis story, we'll wake you up. Don't worry. Have a nice dream. Okay. Um, otherwise, you can sit back and keep your eyes open. You can close them. I like to close mine because I like to try to just imagine I was there. But if you want to play along with class today, imagine me trying to teach you that this is how it all started. Yeah? What would that feel like to have to convert to this? And some of you might understand what it's like to convert from Spaghetti Monster to Christianity. Or from Big Bang story to Christianity. Or from Hinduism or Buddhism to Christianity. Because you have to change your story. Does that make sense? That's a big deal. It's a huge deal. So, ready, set, go. Everybody take a big deep breath. Ready? Come on.
you're in the middle of finals week, you got junior senior banquet, you got homework, you got college, you got all that crazy stuff coming. I brought it up so that you could do what with it? Let it go. Let it go. Oh no, shoot. <laughs> Ready? Take another big deep breath. Ready? Just take a deep breath. Try, try to do story time. Go back to when you were six, sitting next to someone you loved who was reading you a story. Just sit and listen. We got the nice dramatic. The Silmarillion. We got a great book. J. R. R. Tolkien. Edited by Christopher Tolkien. Read by Martin Shaw. Dramatic music. Ainulindala, the music of the Ainul. You can learn how to say everything now, too. <laughs> All right, I'll stop talking. I'm going to stop it like two or three times. I'm going to do about 12 minutes, so not a ton. Just sit back and enjoy a story. was Eru, the one, who in Ardor is called Iluvatar. And he made first the Ainur, the holy ones, that were the offspring of his thought. And they were with him before aught else was made. And he spoke to them, propounding to them themes of music. And they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while they sang only each alone, or but few together, while the rest hearkened. For each comprehended only that part of the mind of Vilovata from which he came. And in the understanding of their brethren they grew but slowly. Yet ever as they listened, they came to deeper understanding and increased in unison and harmony. And it came to pass that Ilovatar called together all the Ainur and declared to them a mighty theme, unfolding to them things greater and more wonderful than he had yet revealed. And the glory of its beginning and the splendor of its end amazed the Ainur, so that they bowed before Ilovatar and were silent. Then Ilovatar said to them, Of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now that ye make in harmony together a great music. And since I have kindled you with the flame imperishable, ye shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme, each with his own thoughts and devices, if he will. But I will sit and hearken, and be glad that through you great beauty has been wakened into song. Then the voices of the Ainur, like unto harps and lutes and pipes and trumpets and viols and organs, and like unto countless choirs singing with words, began to fashion the theme of Ilovata to a great music. 
and a sound arose of endless, interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights, and the places of the dwelling of Iluvata were filled to overflowing, and the music and the echo of the music went out into the void, and it was not void. Never since have the Ainur made any music like to this music, though it has been said that a greater still shall be made before Ilovata by the choirs of the Ainur and the children of Ilovata after the end of days. That's us. Then the themes of Ilovata shall be played aright and take being in the moment of their utterance, for all shall then understand fully his intent in their part, and each shall know the comprehension of each. And Ilovata shall give to their thoughts the secret fire, being well pleased. But now Ilovata sat and hearkened, and for a great while it seemed good to him, for in the music there were no flaws. But as the theme progressed, it came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Ilovata. For he sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. Mm. To Melkor, among the Ainur, had been given the greatest gifts of power and knowledge, and he had a share in all the gifts of his brethren. He had gone often alone into the void places seeking the imperishable flame, for desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own, and it seemed to him that Iluvata took no thought for the void, and he was impatient of its emptiness. Yet he found not the fire, for it is with Iluvata. But being alone, he had begun to conceive thoughts of his own unlike those of his brethren. Some of these thoughts he now wove into his music, and straightway discord arose about him, and many that sang nigh him grew despondent, and their thought was disturbed, and their music faltered. But some began to attune their music to his rather than to the thought which they had at first. Then the discord of Melkor spread ever wider, and the melodies which had been heard before foundered in a sea of turbulent sound. But ill of... First stop. How are we doing? Okay, just sitting there. Imagine if that's the real story. So what would it be then? A god who exists, right? Does what? Creates these angel-type beings, right? Who are really powerful. And everything's what right now? Good. Right? So it's all good. And then he shows them a theme, and then they all have these gifts, and they all start doing what? Singing. And when they sing, it's all working together. How are we doing? Got this whole flame, imperishable thing. Flame, eh? Maybe. Right? And then Melkor, who's really powerful and what? Good. Has some desirings. Goes off and what? Looking for the flame. Wants to do his own thing. And then starts doing his own thing. Why? He wants the glory for himself. He wants to be better for himself. He wants it, the attention to be on him, not Ilvatar. Well, that creates discord, right? 
And actually, other angel beings start singing with him too, creating more discord. All right, thoughts, questions, comments, how we doing? Any parallels to the Hebrew story? <laughs> what are some that you're seeing? Yeah, did anybody catch Lucifer, right? Satan. <laughs> Metaphor here where we've got Melkor wants to do his own thing and give himself glory, right? And, and actually wanting to do his own thing and sing his own stuff, is that necessarily bad? No, no but doing that, why? For his own glory, insert now sin by definition. Got it? So we can see Satan connection there. How about flame imperishable? Eternal life. Holy Spirit. Yeah? Satan falls, brings other angels with him. So are we starting to see that? But is, is it the Bible story? No. no, but there's some really cool connections there. Fair enough? Okay. I think one thing to keep in mind here is Melkor starts good. And then does what? Turns bad. Remember what we've been saying? All good is good, right? Sin is only what? Warped good. And Dolkin, right from the start, sets up his whole mythology right there in the first paragraphs. That all the evil in Middle Earth is going to be warped good. And he does a pretty good job at that. A few more minutes. Let's keep going. As you listen to this next thing, you're going to hear them sing four themes. First theme, second theme, third theme, fourth theme. Those are the four ages of Middle Earth. First age, second age, third age is going to be, you're going to hear them say a, a rippling of sound. Think, right? And then the sad song that's with that, think the elves who are, who are bright but sad. And then you're also going to have the, the, the one that's, loud and vain and endlessly repeated think first corinthians 13 right that like clanging symbol who's that going to be sauron in there that's gonna be the third age and then we're in the fourth age by the way in case you didn't know so that's that's where we are and then he'll wrap it up onward all right settle back in a little more story time that us sat and hearkened until it seemed that about his throne there was a raging storm as of dark waters that made war one upon another in an endless wrath that would not be assuaged. Then Ilavatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that he smiled, and he lifted up his left hand, and a new theme began amid the storm, like and yet unlike to the former theme, and it gathered power and had new beauty. But the discord of Melkor rose in uproar, and contended with it. And again, there was a war of sound, more violent than before, until many of the Ainur were dismayed and sang no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. Then again, Ilvata arose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern, and he lifted up his right hand, and behold, a third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others. For it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate melodies, but it could not be quenched. And it took to itself power and profundity. And it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Ilavata. 
and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow, and blended with an immeasurable sorrow, from which its beauty chiefly came. Elves. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated. Sorrow. And it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. And it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. Ooh, good word. In the midst of this strife, whereat the halls of Ulovata shook and a tremor ran out into the silences yet unmoved, Ilovata arose a third time, and his face was terrible to behold. Mm. Then he raised up both his hands, and in one cord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Ilovata, the music ceased. Then Ilovata spoke, and he said, Mighty are the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know, and all the Ainur, that I am Ilovata, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me. Interesting. Nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. That's a good word. Then the Ainur were afraid, and they did not yet comprehend the words that were said to them. And Melkor was filled with shame, of which came secret anger. That Ilovata arose in splendor, and he went forth from the fair regions that he had made for the Ainur, and the Ainur followed him. But when they were come into the void, Ilovata said to them, Behold your music. And he showed to them a vision, giving to them sight where before was only hearing. And they saw a new world made visible before them. And it was globed amid the void, and it was sustained therein, but was not of it. And as they looked and wondered, this world began to unfold its history. And it seemed to them that it lived and grew. And when the Ainur had gazed for a while and was silent, Ilovata said again, Behold your music. This is your minstrelsy, and each of you shall find contained herein, amid the design that I set before you, all those things which it may seem that he himself devised or added. And thou, Melkor, wilt discover all the secret thoughts of thy mind, and wilt perceive that they are but a part of the whole and tributary to its glory. And many other things Ilovata spoke to the Ainur at that time. And because of their memory of his words and the knowledge that each has of the music that he himself made, the Ainur know much of what was and is and is to come. And few things are unseen by them. Yet some things there are that they cannot see, 
neither alone nor taking counsel together. For to none but himself has Ilovata revealed all that he has in store. And in every age there come forth things that are new, new. and have no foretelling, hmm. for they do not proceed from the past. That's cool. And so it was that as this vision of the world was played before them, the Ainur saw that it contained things which they had not thought. And they saw with amazement the coming of the children of Ilovata, and the habitation that was prepared for them, and they perceived that they themselves and the labor of their music had been busy with the preparation of this dwelling, and yet knew not that it had any purpose beyond its own beauty. For the children of Ilovata were conceived by him alone, and they came with the third theme, and were not in the theme which Ilovata propounded at the beginning, and none of the Ainur had part in their making. Therefore, when they beheld them, the more did they love them, being things other than themselves, strange and free, wherein they saw the mind of Ilovata reflected anew, and learned yet a little more of his wisdom, which otherwise had been hidden even from the Ainur. Now the children of Ilovata are elves and men, the firstborn and the followers. Followers. And amid all the splendors of the world, its vast halls and spaces and its wheeling fires, Ilovata chose a place for their habitation in the deeps of time and in the midst of the innumerable stars. I would love to keep going. I know some of us are like, okay, okay, that's enough. At the same time, there's a creation story. We, we, look, we can look on the internet and get creation stories, and we've got one. Tolkien like, came up with a story about how the world could be created. You can do thumbs up or thumbs down. That's your choice. Most, a lot of people who are uh, in choir like the fact that the world was sung into existence. That's pretty cool, right? Not too shabby, all right? Kind of fun. Anybody remember in Narnia what happens in The Magician's Nephew? Aslan, what? Yeah, he sings it as well. You can see the inklings are working off of each other there. All right, would someone mind turning the lights on? I know, it's gonna, it burns us, it hurts us. <laughs> all right, so everybody wake up your neighbor, bring them back to planet Earth, uh, back from uh, Middle Earth to uh, where we are now. And let's unpack this just for a little bit. All right, just for a little bit and process some of it. Anybody have a thought or two on what it's like just to listen to somebody else come up with a creation story? Yeah. Like, what is it, what's it like to have just a person come up with a... John Ronald Rule Tolkien's like, hey, I'm going to write a story about the creation of everything. What's it like listening to that? There don't have to be thoughts. I was creating space for a thought or two. Yeah, language, right? Now, when you were reading the Hindu one, there's a lot of weird what? Weird names and words, yeah. right? Imagine someone picking up the Bible and you got like Yahweh, you know, and all the you know, seraphim and all those different Lucifer, like all the different words. What would it take to convert? Let's just start there. What would it take to convert? I think some of you think I'm pretending. I am, but at the same time, try to do it. Like, if you literally had to let go of believing the Bible and believe this as the true creation story, 
What would it take? What would you have to do? I would want some proof, although do we even have proof from the Bible? It is, isn't it? Like, it's really intriguing to think, like, we're going to want some evidence. We're going to want some proof. Why do you think Big Bang tries to give us proof? Why do we try to prove that the Bible is a real text? Like, someone really wrote it down with authority and authenticity. Well, do we have proof that Tolkien wrote this? Did a person write it? Yeah. Right? I'd want more. I'd want to know, like, where is Ilvatar and are hobbits real and what's an elf? You know, I'd want, I'd want a little more to connect me to all that. And actually, he has ways to do all that kind of stuff, intriguingly. He's not trying to trick us. He's just trying to create a mythology. But can you guys see the mental calisthenics it would take to shift your trust from trusting the story about a talking snake with two naked people running around in a garden to this one? It would take some work, wouldn't it? Welcome to evangelism. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And so I think you got to consider this process of going from story to story. It's great to trust that some dude 2,000 years ago who you've never met died for all your sins. It's really nice. <laughs> it's also a really strange story. He was born from a virgin, you know, no dad. You know, it's, it's a strange story to just be really blunt, okay? But I believe it's true, and I think it's a really great story. I think it's the story we're in, right? Which makes our world pretty strange. Fair enough? Okay, let's keep going then. I want to do a few things. In your workbook, I've got number two here. The story, in the story, Melkor is a fallen angel type of being. All right? You can see it right here that Melkor wants to interweave matters of his own imagining, not in accord with the theme of Ilavatar. He sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned himself. He's an angel now, and all of a sudden he's what? He's fallen. Right? Those of you who don't know the story or don't know Summer really, what you're going to read, we just listen to God makes angel beings. Angel beings sing. They sing this, and they sing this, and they sing this, and they sing this, and then it's done. And he's like, hey, nice job singing. Guess what? Ready? Now you can actually see it. What? So they could only hear before, and now they can see. And right there, their song is the world. Which is kind of a cool way to think about our world being a song, right? So they get to see it, so then the world is unfolding in front of them, and then the whole thing happens, like you're watching a DVD, and whew, there's the world, there's the whole thing, all of history right in front of you, you're like, wow, that was really cool. They're like, yep, that was really cool. Now ready, set, go. Ready? All of you guys are going in, you're jumping in, and actually you're in the song, and it is real, and now you're going to build it. And so you got Ulmo who likes water and he does oceans and rain. And then you got the dude, you know, and you've got this Manwe and, and all the Valar. And you look in the other one where you start getting all the different ones with their different qualities. And it's really fun. And Tolkien's basically saying this world was in conjunction with God created with these beings who are building it together. Yeah? How are we doing? We okay? So ready? Melkor does not like that. So what does Melkor want to do when we see these beautiful mountain peaks? What does Melkor want to do with the mountains? He wants to destroy them. He's like, mountains? Oh, yeah? Well, I hate mountains, and I don't like all this beautiful stuff, so watch. And he pushes the mountains down, and then what does he make? 
valleys. Like, thanks, Rivendell's beautiful. Nice job, Melkor. Did he want to make a beautiful valley? No. Uh, no. <laughs> Ulmo has rain going on. It's right on that next page there. There's rain and rivers and water. And does Melkor like the water? No. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to heat it all up and ruin the water. And he makes fog and steam that's so pretty, isn't it? Th th thanks, Melkor. Did he want to make something beautiful? No. Oh, yeah. Well, he's like, fine, I'm going to freeze it. And what does he make? Snow. snow. Th thanks, Melkor, for making snow. <laughs> now, I don't know if you're catching some of this, but first off, I will have probably three or four students out of my 140. And if that's all that's left, I want to catch you. <laughs> it might be more than that. But let me give you two things to walk away from here. One, I went through, I love my elementary school. I graduated from Wheaton College, or from Wheaton Academy. I went off to Houghton College. I loved all my schooling. I love my church. My parents were great. I'm sure I heard a sermon on this. I am. But it never stuck. Guess where I finally learned this lesson? I always thought, up until, until, I, until I read this, I thought it was Satan versus God. And some of you are like, uh, well, isn't it? Uh, right? No. It, and hopefully in doctrine class you caught it. If not, here I am. I thought it was Satan fighting God. And look at this big battle of evil and good. And oh no, and God's got to crush Satan over here. <coughs> How does Satan do when he has to face Jesus? How'd that go? <laughs> I think it lasted a couple paragraphs. And, and how'd it go? Oh, and by the way, when Satan wants to mess with Job, he like has to put his tail between his legs and go ask God for permission. Is Satan fighting God? Wait, wait real quick. Is Satan fighting God? Uh, no. <laughs> put God in a boxing ring. Seriously. Put God, Yahweh in a boxing ring and then put this little angel that God created in the boxing ring and have him fight Yahweh. How's it going to go? If you're not laughing, you should be. Like, seriously? That's like a lion with a cricket. Satan is a created angel. Does he have any chance with God? <laughs> not at all. Like, it's almost a joke. No way. It, it, guess what? I grew up thinking monism. Monism is evil versus good and dark and light and yin and yang. Is that the biblical story? No, there's God who is light and it's good. It's all good. And then this little angel dude tries to screw it all up. And can he? Uh, no. Does he have a chance against God? No. I'm hoping you're like, duh, Mr. T. <laughs> it took you to college to get that. Uh, yeah, it did. And you know what? Sermons are great. God gave a sermon in Matthew and a couple other places. Can sermons teach us stuff? Yeah, and can lectures teach us stuff? C.S. Lewis gave a great lecture called The Way to Glory. It's awesome. Changed my life. So our lecture is fruitful. Yeah, but ready? I want to see who can tell me the Sermon on the Mount right now. Ready? Go. What's the Sermon on the Mount? We got that. Good. What else? So nice, like, come on. Nice job. How many of us remember this? I mean, God gives a sermon. Should we know what's in it? <laughs> Probably. So you got some time. But sermons are valuable. Do, but do we remember sermons, really? 
No, but could any of you tell me the prodigal, prodigal son story? Yeah, and could you tell me the story about the lost sheep? Yeah, could you tell me the wise and foolish builders with the sand and the rock? Yeah, those are all. Jesus did sermons. He also did what? Stories. They're not different theology. <laughs> one's a sermon and a lecture. The other one's a story. Guess what you just got in Bible class? It wasn't a lecture. We listened to a story, but can it teach us about the true story? Yeah, and you know what? It, it For me, guess when I finally undid my monism that I grew up with when I read Silmarillion. I remember sitting there in the chair like, oh, dude, uh, oops, <laughs> that's awkward. Right, because Satan actually, when I went and looked, Satan fights who, really? Us. Us, which, by the way, does he have any authority over us? No, all the authority has been given to Jesus, which is given to us, so does he have a chance? No. Oh, and by the way, when he wants to fight anybody, particularly Old Testament, who is he fighting? Michael and Gabriel, like other angels, right? So just FYI, I took five minutes to explain some theology for you. Don't slide into monism. It's not evil versus good, and I don't know who's going to win. If you want that, go with Star Wars, right? It's not what we believe. Let me give you one other one that's way more personal with for me, and then we'll move on. Maybe we'll have enough time at the end of class here to start up The Hobbit. But this other one I, I think is intriguing because a lot of us don't understand this truth. Melkor wants to ruin creation, and he's unable to do so because an all-powerful creator God in the story redeems and weaves all of his attempts into the pattern of the full story. I don't know if you caught that. It's got a typo in there. I'll fix that. But seriously, how would, it, how would it make you feel if you were Melkor? You're trying to ruin what God creates, all the beauty. You try to ruin it, and instead you make more beautiful things. How would that feel? But that's not as intense. See, he wants to ruin it, and then he made a good thing more beautiful. It's like, wouldn't that be so frustrating? <coughs> Uh, I just want you to realize, like for me, I had never seen Satan in that light in our story. I was afraid of him. I was worried he could ruin things. If you're catching this truth, if you want to believe it, you can. Melkor can't ruin anything that Ilvatar is doing. He could try, but he can't. You know, two years later, my dad died in a horrible car accident. I already told you guys about that. It's his car got hit by a semi-truck. It was pretty ugly, right? And for a while there, I was, I was worrying that, oh no, my, my life might be ruined. Our, my mom's a widow with nine children. Our family will be ruined because Satan ruined our family. I'm glad I had read this two years earlier because guess what I held on to? Can Satan ruin my family? See, I got like two of you to shake your head. Can Satan ruin your life? No. No way. He doesn't have that kind of power. Seriously? Would God give him that kind of power? No way. And so my dad dies, and I thought my family was ruined. And actually, by hanging with Christ and staying near to him, who is the Redeemer, my family actually grew a little tighter. And was it hard? 
Oh, it was horrible as hell. It was so painful. I'm not going to call what happened good. But Satan's attempt to destroy turned out for good. Seven years later, and lots of therapy later, I had realized that I was idolizing my earthly father and not really connecting with my heavenly father. And guess what ended up happening because of that? I ended up shifting my trust into God as a father versus my earthly father. Now, it shouldn't naturally happen, but it wasn't for me. And it did because of that. And is my family okay? Yeah, actually, we're doing really well. We're, we're thriving. And we're learning. And now, and now I have that lesson that I can teach others. And I come into teaching and I can connect with people who lose their parents in a different way. And did Satan ruin my life? No, he, he can't. Can he ruin yours? I imagine what that looks like. Satan's going to take Joseph and throw him in a pit. And like, I got Joseph. Oh, shoot. No, I don't. Oh, crud. Like, he tries to ruin Joseph's life, and then Joseph ends up saving all of Israel. Like, it's like, sorry, Satan. Imagine he's like, oh, Satan's walking around. The, you got a thought? If someone, though, if he, if he ruins someone's life, someone dies, Well, I wonder how God's going to work that out. I wonder. I would like to think that Satan didn't do that. Satan didn't ruin that guy's life. I don't think he has that kind of power. I think he can mess with us. He can't ruin. Yeah, because otherwise, then that Satan that puts Satan having more control over us than we have over ourselves. Now, can we surrender our control of our lives? Well, yeah. How many of us just literally just give up our lives and just let whatever happened happen? Welcome to materialism, really, right? But we don't have to let Satan control us, do we? <laughs> I'd like to think, no, although we are slaves to sin, and we are trapped, and it is a war, and we are in war. Does that make sense? Like, but I'd like to think that, no, we don't have to just end up there as victims on this journey. right? But picture Satan walking around the planet it's like, oh, this is awesome. Wait, God? You put God like in body form? <laughs> this is great. I'm going to be able to kill God. And so what does he do? He gets about, hey, you guys, over here. Don't believe that guy. He's not really God. Hate him, really. And why don't you just kill him? And so he gets all these people over here to kill Jesus, right? And what is Satan thinking? I just did what? I killed God. This is awesome. I killed God. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, what does he realize? Shoot! He took all of the sins of all of humanity on himself? Ah, oh, crap! You know, like, how like, oh no, three days later he comes back to life? Shoot! Right? Like, you imagine how frustrated that day must have been. Like, part of me has a little compassion for the dude. Like, sorry. Like, that sucks for you, Satan. You tried to kill God, and oh, you did, and then took all of our sins down to hell. And then he came back, so did you really even kill him? Oh, by the way, he's triune, so did you really even kill him? No, sorry, dude. <laughs> like, awkward, like, awkward moment. Where's the emoji for that one? <laughs> like, Satan with the, <laughs> right? I want, I, but I wonder, I'm laughing a little bit through it because doesn't it give some freedom? Like, some of you need to, you've been sitting here for an hour and 20 minutes waiting for class to be over, maybe. Maybe you could leave with at least that thought. The dude cannot ruin your life. <laughs> Right? If you're not going to believe the Bible story, well, could Melkor ruin this story? 
Nope. I love reading it in here because it gives me hope. I'm like, wouldn't that be cool if that was... I caught myself saying it. Oh. Yeah, that would be cool if that was true. <laughs> oh, wait, it what? It is, right? I mean, seriously, when you die, do you even really die? And it's like, I'm going to kill Dr. Dominguez in a car crash and that'll ruin him forever and actually I just sent him to heaven. Like, oops. <laughs> Awkward. Like, death's a nap. Alright. And if you're sick, it sucks, right? But can God heal it? Now? Later? Will you get a new body? There we go. Right? Like, we're okay here. And can he even redeem the suffering in the process of all that? Actually, he often does. Like, see, like, if you really, really settle into, like, settle into that concept, Satan really doesn't have, he's like, he's a king of shadow, isn't he? We're shadow boxing. The dude's really got nothing. <laughs> kind of freeing. I got, go have a nice lunch on something like this. this is really encouraging. And if you've given Satan way too much power, guess what you can kind of let go of now? A, the dude has no authority. B, he really can't ruin your life. Don't like and don't believe. Guess who's the one telling you that he can't? <laughs> Sorry, who? <laughs> he is. <laughs> he's a liar. <coughs> Actually, I think that's the thing is he's deceived himself so much that he thinks he can. And he wants to get you to think that he can. Do you have to go for that? No way. I'm not going to fall for that again. I did for a while. No way. And now when you hear a verse like, if the Son has set you free, you're what? You're free indeed. And can Paul be really bold? <laughs> and can you and I be pretty bold? Yeah? At the sound of his great name. You know, pretty sweet. And by the way, greater is he who is in you than who is in the world. Right? Go Tolkien. Thoughts, questions, comments on that. Thanks for a little pushback there. And today was about me taking this block day and using this mythical story. Can this story teach us about our story? Yeah, well, for me at least, it's what unlocked some really important things that I had heard lectures and sermons and read books about for years. The story is what did it. I'm so grateful to good storytelling. That's maybe why we flock to movies and really great novels and why Harry Potter was falling off the shelves, right? Because it's really great storytelling that whether we're aware of it or not does what? <laughs> Inspire us in our story or teach us about our story. Fair enough? Go team. All right, well, don't give Satan too much credit, right? Fair enough. Uh, we got like six minutes. Should we watch a little bit of The Hobbit? Let's do that, because here's what's next. The Hobbit is what's next. So tomorrow come and we'll talk about killing dragons and we'll look at riddles in the dark. If you want to read the chapter, you, it won't be a waste of your time. It's fabulous, right? Those of you who have know what I'm talking about. 
And we'll look a little bit at Hobbit tomorrow. That'll probably carry into Monday. And then we're off and running to Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings the rest of the semester. If you want to look at the final exam on Academy Central, you are welcome to do so. I'll talk about it in the next few days. But I have a hunch many of you will be busy this weekend. So, <laughs> right. So you're, you're, you're just a little bit tiny. So thanks, Libby. All right. Did I turn that on? Do you want to hit the lights? Let's at least start Hobbit. Because here's what I want you to realize is, again, we get this story in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And what's Tolkien doing with hobbit, right? Dragons are, quite frankly, in every worldview on the planet. Dragon is in every mythology on the planet. It's kind of fun. So what could it mean to have a kingdom that's thriving and filled with gold and then a dragon comes in, kicks you out and sits on the gold and hoards it all to himself? I mean, come on, does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> no, not at all. And then you get invited to get on a journey to go kill that dragon, reclaim kingdom treasure, reclaim your identity. Go Tolkien. You asked me once if I had told you everything there was to know about my what? adventures. Peter, let's give it up for Peter Jackson. Well, I can honestly say I have told you the truth. So good. I may not have told you all of it. I am old now, Frodo. I'm not the same hobbit I once was. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. I think it is time for you to know what really happened. You got Everybody needs to get an owl feather quill pen. By it the way. began long ago in a land far away to the east, the like of which you will not find in the world today. It's known far and wide, full of the bounties of vine and vale, peaceful and prosperous. For this city lay before the doors of the greatest kingdom in Middle-earth, Erebor, stronghold of Thrall, king under the mountain, mightiest of the dwarf lords. Thrall ruled with utter surety, never doubting his house would endure, for his line lay secure in the lives of his son quite a, and grandson. Quite a hallway there. Built deep within the mountain itself, the beauty of this fortress city was legend. Its wealth lay in the earth, in precious gems hewn from rock and in great seams of gold, running like rivers through stone. The skill of the dwarves was unequaled, fashioning objects of great beauty out of diamond, emerald, ruby, That's awesome. and <laughs> Ever they delved deep down into the dark, and that is where they found it. 
stone. Thor named it the King's Jewel. He took it as a sign, a sign that his right to rule was divine. All would pay homage to him, even the great elven king, Thrandmion. But the years of peace and plenty were not to last. Slowly the days turned sour, and the watchful nights closed in. And I'm going to pause before the bell goes, just let me get a word in here. Up until just there, everything's going what? Swimmingly, like we're doing. Well, that was really cool. Everything's fine. I mean, they're sharing their wealth. Is there, is there a problem with having a lot of gold? No, and he's sharing it, and he's a good king. Everything's fine. Does a dragon show up when that's happening? No, when does the monster show up? When he gets what? Greedy. Tolkien, the brilliant scholar, became world famous for a piece of criticism he wrote on Beowulf called The Monsters and the Critics. And he realized in all mythology that monsters reveal and attack our weaknesses, right? Greed shows up in his character. Well, when the greed shows up, what else shows up? The dragon, what are dragons known for? Being greedy. See you guys. Have a nice day. Ooh. <laughs> Wasn't it nice to forget about that for a little while? <laughs> Love for gold has grown too fierce. Ah! <laughs> nice job today, you guys. Go in peace.